Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. I'm Srinath Raghavan and this is a podcast presented by Carnegie India. Every two weeks, we bring to you voices from India and around the world as we unpack the role of technology, the economy and foreign policy in shaping India's relationship with the world. In the light of the recent coronavirus outbreak, we are now recording and producing episodes of Interpreting India remotely. The Indian economy was facing a series of critical structural issues even before the coronavirus pandemic came along. Investments had been on the decline since 2015. Credit too had been hit by the risk aversion of banks, especially the public sector banks. These factors, along with others, contributed to a steady decline in economic growth over the last few years. A central problem in all this is the erosion of the compact between state and capital that underpinned economic growth since the reforms of the early 1990s leaders of the business community underscore the lack of business friendly policies as contributing to the state of affairs the government by contrast thinks that if some businesses are uncomfortable it is because older forms of rent seeking are no longer open to them in this episode of interpreting india we discuss the evolving and changing nature of state capital relations in india to what extent has confidence in the state and the economy eroded among indian businesses how has this changing relationship impacted the economy and finally what if anything can be done to mend it joining us today to discuss these issues is rohit chandra rohit is an assistant professor at the iit delhi's school of public policy is also a visiting fellow at the center for policy research in new delhi he works primarily on energy infrastructure and state capitalism in india his recent work has covered the coal and power industries over the last decade he has worked in the policy space on coal sector reforms the politics of state distribution companies and the public finance decisions behind large infrastructure projects he was recently the guest editor along with rahul varma of an issue of the journal seminar on state and capital in contemporary india rohit welcome to the podcast it's great to have you with us today thanks so much shrinath it's a pleasure to be here rohit i want to begin by asking you to explain to us a little bit of the premise behind the seminar issue that you put together recently so the main argument of the many wonderful papers in that issue uh, incidentally we are linking the issue uh, to the show notes so our listeners will be able to check it out for themselves but one of the fundamental premises there is that there was a particular type of compact between the indian state and capital perhaps since the early 1990s since the reforms began and that that compact is now transforming changing into something which looks very different so before we get into the details of what exactly is the new set of relationships that are emerging between state and capital Could you just recap for us your understanding of what the older compact was, and why it has given way to something new? Of course, thanks. Um, I think the the early 1990s is a good starting point. Obviously, major liberalization and economic reforms, kind of a bigger intellectual commitment to markets, a bigger intellectual commitment to allowing the private sector to undertake economic activities with less like regulations. permits etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean that was kind of part of it but i think some of these 
this compact was really formed in the early 2000s as a successor of some of the 1990s ideas when we started pushing our public sector banking system to really bankroll a lot of the transformative especially infrastructural changes right and so i mean if you think of ideas like the golden quadrilateral project the expansion of kind of our telecom sector a lot of this was done on the assumption that look we know we are a slightly capital starved country we are going to use our public sector banks to pay for a lot of these big projects but we also know that government psus and organizations may not always be the right vehicle for implementing them so we'll actually lend a lot of this money to private companies to undertake these projects right um about 20 years after all of this what we're seeing is that a lot of the basic promises regarding basic inputs whether it's electricity some kinds of basic infrastructure access to capital all of these things are becoming more difficult for private companies especially those outside of the top 20 30 business groups who have kind of always managed in india one way or another right kind of through their connections and so i think one thing you could say is that from 1990 to at least kind of the early 2010s there was a notion that competition was good that concentration of capital was not what we wanted that we wanted more players we wanted more entry uh, you know um i think particularly in the last 7 8 years as we've seen private investment declining uh there is i think a larger uh dissatisfaction and that has come out of a lot of my interviews regarding maybe not the largest capitalists in india but kind of the smaller and medium sized capitalists the people who are let's say below 2500 crores in market cap these kinds of companies who are still important to the indian economy but you know are finding it more difficult to get things done i think at the same time there is kind of also a sense that some of the 1970s demonization of capital is coming back right the the bad boy billionaires the vijay malyas and nirav modi's who've kind of been put front and center as the kind of face of look at these big bad capitalists who took our money and then ran away with it and while those people are symptomatic of some of the larger problems in india i don't think they're representative of the average indian capitalist and so there is a certain sense of look we 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 were part of this larger arrangement with successive governments to help india grow um why are we being made out as the villains right now i think that's a certain sentiment that did come out during some of my interviews and i think that's a rough summary of i think how things have evolved in the last few decades so one of the things that came out for me from reading the many papers in that issue was that the sheer heterogeneity of what we think of as indian capital right i mean in a sense that it is not an entity which can be clubbed together either as a homogenous kind of group with a uniform set of interests in play nor can it simply be divided up in terms of its size right i mean there is something around orientation around whether they are rent seeking whether they are looking for policy change or they simply looking for a level playing field and so on right so there are many typologies which you and your co-authors kind of put out there but the one thing that you do point out early on is what you call uncertainty of intermediation and that relates to the point that you were just now making which is that things are getting difficult to get done could you just elaborate on that particular point please absolutely i i think this is actually probably one of the most important points i i i think for there for better or for worse politicians and businessmen have always been close collaborators in india 
if you go back to our roots during independence and large capitalist bankrolling the Congress, uh, or all of election finance, which has happened in the last 50 years. In some senses, small local businessmen or large national businessmen have always had close relationships with parties, right? And not all of this is illegal. Some of this is just about kind of supporting parties and then expecting certain sympathetic policies, which goes shops stop short of lobbying or any kind of illegality, but it's just kind of part of the political process. I think especially in the last six, seven years, there is a sense that there's a slightly absolutist stance towards not being seen or associating with capital explicitly, except for, let's say, some of the large firms who are very close to this government that we know. I think before, if you were a local MLA and you were fighting an election, you would probably go around to 10, 20 businessmen, talk to them all, raise money from them, figure out what some of their preferences are like. And if you came into power, then you would also try to help them kind of expand their industries, all of these kinds of things. I think one of the things that's happened is that the responsiveness of local politicians to the bottom-up demands of capital have become eroded much more, especially with the centralization of party financing. And we can get into the whole electoral bond issue a little bit later. But in that sense, unless you have access to the few points which are really making decisions, particularly in this government, let's say the PMO and a few other ministries, um, you actually don't know who to talk to who will actually listen to you. And I think one of the turning points was this kind of Sudbut Ki Sarkar moment a few years into the first Modi government where basically informally it was communicated to most leading politicians and a lot of leading bureaucrats that you should not be seen publicly with big businessmen, that it is making us look bad in terms of cozying up to all of these people, which is interesting because this, you know, large capitalists were by, by and large a group which very strongly supported Narendra Modi during his first kind of election bid in 2014, right? And that about face, I think, was perceived as a little bit of a betrayal, right? Even if it's bad for public optics and all of these kinds of things, we supported you. Why have you forsaken us? I think this is a sentiment that definitely came up over and over again. So unless you have access to the few ministers and the few secretaries who know how to tack to capital, I think by and large, both the Indian kind of economic bureaucracy, uh, particularly a lot of the economic ministries, and anyone except, let's say, the top five politicians, um, even if you get an audience with them, you don't know if they can get anything done. And before that, it used to be more of an open house in some senses, right? Lots of ministers and lots of secretaries and joint secretaries would take meetings. They would thrash out ideas. They would agree and disagree. They were, the, the, the frequency and regularity of conversations was much higher across the spectrum, both in the political class and the bureaucratic class. I think that space has shrunk, which means that you just don't know what they're thinking and how to influence them. And to some extent, that can be a good thing, right? I mean, maybe the pendulum had got too far in the other direction where everyone who wanted access got it, right? Perhaps it was supposed to swing back the other way. But there is definitely a sense that it's perhaps gone too far the other way and needs to come back to a more sustainable equilibrium where capital has some voice in the system, even if it isn't a public. Interesting. Uh, so your Argument is kind of more focused on what is happening in the policy making process, right? And and what are the points of entry, stroke, influence, or even giving an input, so to speak, for capital law for any other interest groups. Uh, I'm just wondering if there is also a 
political kind of a framing of the story which is important which is to say that you know for much of the period that you spoke about when the old compact or not so old compact 20 year old compact was in play in say starting from the late 1990s onwards was a period when we had coalition governments in place right since 2014 we've had two successive governments with clear majorities of their own now that really means that the range of regional capital and smaller kind of players as you're saying smaller only in relative to the biggest players uh, in the system in the business system perhaps have lesser role to play simply because regional political parties have stopped counting for as much in the central government right i mean you only need to sort of look at as you were saying the number of ministers from different parties in the context of say upa 1 or 2 right and the kinds of plum portfolios that usually coalition partners would bargain for their ministers often with an eye to precisely the kinds of rent seeking things that you underline in the uh, in, in your essay as well of course with the advent of narendra modi and the bjp emerging as a you know a, a clear sort of you know party of uh, a ruling party with its own majority of course it operates in an alliance but doesn't really need the allies uh, the space has shrunk and in that sense you know it's it's a bit like what the congress party was in its heyday in the 1970s and the 1980s right so there is no space for any smaller capitalist groups simply because the ruling political regime and dispensation can serve its financial and economic needs by cultivating only a very few perhaps amongst the top tier of companies in terms of getting their elections bankrolled etc so i'm just wondering if there is also a sort of a political story here beyond the policy making setup and centralization story oh no doubt i mean these these things are i mean completely interconnected i think the only reason this thing can happen is because you have a large national majority you can kind of push some of these decisions i think the interesting thing to see is kind of if you look at the growth episodes post 2000 some of the strongest growth episodes i mean depending on which gdp figures you believe happened during these coalition periods i think when the heterogeneity of capital is allowed to function the way it is right so in some senses i completely agree with you that kind of not having a coalition government means that you'd have to kind of just cater to fewer needs less rent seeking you know kind of a, a a more authoritative kind of centralized decision making regarding what economics matter what business decisions matter all of these things but in some senses i think you know kind of harish damodaran's essay actually talks about you know the entrepreneurs right kind of all of these kind of coastal andhra businessmen who kind of gain surpluses and then plowed them into especially infrastructure industries you know kind of the gmrs and the gdps of the world these types of companies and in some senses i think that's a good thing right i mean you want your regional capitalists to succeed i think one of the big dilemmas that we see emerging from kind of this strong central government is that they also seem to want fewer places fewer entrepreneurs and businessmen to manage the system rather than deal with the complexity of it, right so if you have your entrepreneurs and you have a different group of businessmen from tamil nadu and a different group of businessmen from west bengal in some senses managing all of them is more difficult if you just say okay i'm going to deal with the 30 biggest business groups i'm going to create rules and regulations which are easier for them to navigate and that is how i'm going to manage the national economy there's there's definitely a sense that there's a disenfranchisement of local businesses and i'm not sure that's necessarily good policy i mean it may work for 
political environment. It may work for political financing. But I think it also leads to a lot of destruction, destruction of economic value. And I think we've seen that with the decline of private investment, especially small private investment in the last decade or so. But one of the ironies that you pick up is that, you know, Indian capital as a class, right? So as, as a group, which is kind of conscious of certain kinds of collective interests, hasn't really expressed that much discontent with the recent turn of events, precisely because uh, the interests of perhaps some of the biggest players in that collective is being served or they expect it to be served better, even in the current kind of system. So in a sense, despite all the uncertainty of intermediation, the various kinds of lack of access, the overall decline in growth, the various kinds of policies, particularly around taxation, which corporate India, as you know, has been quite unhappy about, there has been, been that much of an articulation of their class interest, so to speak. No, absolutely. And I, I think this is something which has been historically a problem as well, right? I mean, whether you, all of our major chambers of commerce have not really been nationally representative in that sense, right? They've often been controlled by kind of the 20, 30 largest business groups who are doing relatively well right now compared to kind of the rest of the you know, business size distribution. And so in some senses, I think the, the traditional sites for collective action of business, which are these kind of, especially the national chambers of commerce, have just been phenomenally ineffective, right? I mean, they may do seminars and they may hold national convenings, but like putting out a single policy paper which says, here are ways we think we could improve the national economy. Here's what a roadmap for taxation looks like. Here's how we think the telecom kind of taxation war can be solved. I've never seen any large company put out any vision document on this front, right? And I think that's partly uh, uh, just private negotiations are more productive for individual businesses than public confrontation. That's part of it. But part of it, I think, is also that a lot of the companies don't have this kind of deep policymaking long-term apparatus. When you're living quarter to quarter, six months to six months, and you're not thinking about the long run, as long as you can get rules and regulations and especially deals rather than rules which favor you, it doesn't matter what happens to anywhere else. And so unfortunately, I think there's a there's a basic selfishness which seems to have precluded any kind of collective action on that front. Um, and, and, and I think some people rightly say that, look, in a previous generation, a different kind of capitalist was in power. In the last 20, 30 years, some of the traditional capitalists who have had power have declined and some new ones have come up. And so this is, this, is just, this is just a cyclical thing. This happens all the time. There's no point in publicly confronting the government about anything because there is obviously the very strong possibility of some kind of tax or financial retribution, as we've seen many times. And so I think there's part of it is fear-oriented and part of it is just collective action problems. And between the combination of those two things, very few corporations are willing to speak up. It's definitely a problem. And Harish Damodaran, in the same essay that you mentioned earlier, also argues that there is actually something akin to a decline in entrepreneurism itself that we can see, right? Uh, in fact, he, he has this interesting statistic uh, where he says that out of the top 200 listed companies, which are also run by the promoters, uh, you know, by value in 2014-15, uh, as of date, 57 have gone totally out of business. Now, a fourth of them clearly knocked out of the field, so to speak. And uh, he says that, you know, that is the trend line that we are seeing, which is that the entrepreneurial energy, which characterized the periods of high growth, whichever way you want to think about it, of the early 2000s, 
has perhaps fizzled out. Would you agree with that reading? I, I, I see. I think empirically, this is very hard to establish a little bit because we never see the failure rates of companies in India too often, partly because they never really fail, right? They die a slow death because bankruptcy didn't exist until a few years ago. But in some senses, I think a few things where I have seen this is the number of companies who have been blacklisted for loans by public sector banks, right? I mean, this is not public data, but I've kind of seen these in certain places. And I definitely think that in some senses, between the access to capital to problem that small businesses face and the difficulty of scaling, I, a lot less people are deciding to start new businesses. I think software and some of these other spaces are exceptional, right? They're the startup costs are low. You don't need to invest so much in inventory and real estate and manpower and all of these kinds of things. But anything which is kind of a hard industry where you need kind of physical space, where you need stock, all of these kinds of things, you are definitely seeing huge rises in concentration for capital, concentration of capital. About four or five months ago, Krishna Kant had this amazing article in Business Standard where he showed the Herfindahl index in a range of industries around kind of 2011, 12, and then in 2018, 19. And you can see that whether it's telecom, whether it's airlines, whether it's power, whether it's steel, your Herfindahl index has increased across the board, which means industrial concentration has increased. The top business groups have more and more market share. And I, I think that's a reversal of at least what was happening in India in the first 20 years. So I, I, I do think that Harish is largely right. Unfortunately, I think this doesn't get covered as much, especially in kind of business newspapers and business media as it should. The failure rate of India's companies has increased in the last Right. Year. And the IBC process, which was introduced by this government, has obviously been, you know, I think quite correctly hailed as an important reform, right? I mean, Arvind Subramanian used to say that, you know, uh, we went from socialism without entry to capitalism without exit, right? So in a sense, you needed to have <laughs> companies which can fail and go under, as it were. And, you know, that's, that's a process which was in some ways quite overdue. But I'm just wondering whether there has been some kind of an unanticipated negative externality of the IBC process as well, which is that, you know, there is something akin to, as you know, Raj Shekhar, one of the contributors in your uh, issue, says that there's something like a fire sale which is actually happening with the number of buyers actually being very few, which is part of the reason why this concentration that we are seeing is increasing so much. Uh, is that a trend that you think is uh, borne out by what we've seen over the last few years? I mean, I, I do think that the fire sale of IBC assets is a bit of a problem, but I don't think that's necessarily... IBC being the problem, right? I mean, I, you did a great episode with Bhargavi Zaveri on all of these details. I think one of the issues that's emerged from the IBC is, A, obviously, like legacy promoters have pushed back in a very hard way, which led to a lot of dilution of kind of the IBC post-COVID especially. But I, I think the second thing is that the IBC only works when there are other people who have access to capital who are willing to buy the assets which are being sold, Right. And because public sector banks have always been the primary lender, at, not always, but especially in the last 20 years, have been the primary lender in kind of, you know, corporate, uh, for corporate lending. Um, wh who has the cash to buy these fire sale assets except large conglomerates with cash or people from abroad, right? Through private equity firms and other kinds of funds which have been set up. So in some senses, the IBC process was created to allow bankruptcies, but the only people who have the cash to buy things 
by and large, tend to be either larger companies or external investors, which naturally leads to, I think, domestic entrepreneurs and businessmen losing their assets on the margin, right? Um, you know, it, 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 I think there's a few cases where the old owners have bought it back at lesser prices and they were trying to game the system and we've you know, tried to move against that. But in some senses, I, I think the IBC reinforces some of the concentration problems because of the bad state the Indian economy has been for the last six, seven years, which has led to a paucity of cash across the board. You can't go to a public sector bank and ask them to lend you to buy a bunch of IBC assets as your first business, right? You have to have some history. And because of that legacy effect, entry has been very difficult. Um, um, yeah, I think that's 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 one of the unintended consequences of all sure. of this. Sure, but at least in some instances, perhaps like telecom, it does seem like government policy has also favored the emergence of, you know, a very few players, some of which are very large and capable of effectively crowding out competition from the market. Um, you know, I understand this may not be, again, uh, a direct consequence of intended policy, so to speak. But I just wonder what regulatory institutions like the Competition Commission make of these kinds of developments. Right. No, it's it's a good question. I think, unfortunately, the, the Competition Commission has been singularly ineffective as an organization, right? The whole kind of concentration in telecom and all of the cases that were filed at both TRI and the Competition Commission after the entrance of Reliance Geo should have been resolved quickly if the signal was we want to have a nice, varied, kind of heterogeneous, kind of many-player telecom market. I think there was a very intentional decision to A, drag on the regulatory proceedings on everything related to the entry of this new big player, which if it were an external company would be accused of anti-dumping but or dumping, but you know because it's an Indian player and it was Reliance, it got away with a lot. So in, in some senses, I agree. And this is what I'm talking about in the political preference for a few large players who are perhaps in, in sync with government policy in some senses, right? Telecom... 10 years ago was a highly varied space with a lot of players, a lot of differences in quality of service, pricing, a lot of regional capital. And slowly, all of that has consolidated into what kind of three large telecom players and maybe BSNL, right? Um, I, I think that is very, I mean, between tax policy, between pricing policy, and between the lack of any enforcement of real competition kind of standards, this is the result that happens. And so that that then makes you think, does this government really care all that much about domestic competition? It's definitely a question that has come up over and over again that, you know, some, you know, I, I, I think there's a generation of idealistic portfolio managers who try to compare what's happening right now to the Chebol experience in South Korea saying, right, look, we need a few small concentrated firms who can manage the ecosystem and everyone else will function below them. I'm not sure that's exactly what's happening in India, but I think that is one narrative that we do see emerging a bit. Especially yeah, the last South Korean years. model was effectively about going out and winning markets, right? And building world-beating products, not trying to get a bigger share of your own home market, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. I mean, external versus domestic markets matters a lot in this argument. And so I think there's a very glib kind of turn of phrase among a certain Bombay portfolio manager class, which says that, look, Japan and Korea had this, we can have concentration of capital as well. It's not such a problem. But when you're doing it to your own citizens and you're also not kind of competing in international markets, you no, know, it's it's not like people are buying Indian cars head over heels abroad, right? I mean, 
most of it is being served in the domestic market. Um, and so the, there is a fundamental, I think, dissonance between concentration of capital and ultimately consumers surplus and the value that the Indian consumer will get. And I think that it is a very real concern that these concentration of capital problems may lead to consumers suffering further. And how does foreign capital fit into all of this? Because one of the things that we've seen over the past year, certainly last, you know, uh, you know, this calendar year, so to speak, is uh, uptick in foreign direct investment flows, right? Now, there are two ways you could think of it. One is that uh, FDI flows, you know, still tell a meta narrative that India has a potential for growth story, which whatever be the current situation, you know, the country is kind of has a lot of promise, remains attractive, despite all the other problems that we've been discussing. But on the flip side, you could also argue that much of that FDI is flowing primarily by way of taking stakes in the existing large corporations within the Indian context itself. So in a sense, foreign capital feels secure only in certain niches, so to speak, in the Indian economy. I mean, how do you sort of read what these numbers tell us? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think it is very heartening that FDI flows in India are increasing, but I, I think it comes back to that question of intermediation that I was talking about earlier, right? For the last 30 to 40 years, many, many international companies have preferred to enter the Indian market through JVs than through going at it alone, right? Whether it's Maruti, Suzuki, Ashok Leland, there's kind of an entire list of companies over the last 50 years who have preferred to have an Indian partner who is better at managing the domestic, political, bureaucratic, and economic ecosystem. I, I, I think what we are seeing is that certain large corporations in India can send that signal out very well to right? So if you are a Reliance or an Adani or a Tata or maybe kind of a three to five other large business groups who have managed to succeed in the last six years, despite some of the adversity the Indian economy is facing, you have become a credible intermediary for international capital. And a lot of international capitalists have entered India, tried their hand, and frankly, I think suffered a little bit. I think Vodafone being one of the cases in point, unfortunately. And so in some senses, I think the, I mean, the niches is, a, I, I think, one important point. But the other is that even the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks, when they're putting money into India, um, seem to want to do it through a domestic partner who can manage both the political risks and some of the uncertainties associated with the bureaucratic ecosystem. Um, and some of our companies are able to do that and others are not. So I think you are going to see a concentration among some of these largest firms because people, one of the interesting parts of kind of the global economy right now is this global financial system is awash in capital, right? Lots of people have lots of money and they don't know what to do with it, especially because bonds in developed countries and a bunch of other investments are just very low yielding. They want a piece of the Indian market. They know that they have to allocate something like, you know, two, three, five, seven percent of their overall capital to India as part of their diversification strategy. But they can't for the life of them figure out how to do it in a non-risky way. And one way of de-risking that is saying, I'll put it through Reliance and I know Reliance can manage the Indian ecosystem. Um, and so I think that that is definitely part of it. Um, there are, uh, you know, whether it's performance link incentives or various other factors which this government has been promoting has been useful. But some of it has also been that, look, there, you know, 
we want to do business in India. We need to find a way and this is a safe way to do it. So let's go to these companies. I think that's part of the mentality. Sure. So what is the outlook going forward? Because, you know, clearly the pandemic has worsened many of the problems that we had uh, with our economy to begin with. Uh, as you mentioned briefly, and we discussed this in a previous episode with Bhargavi Zaveri, the insolvency uh, and bankruptcy process has been put on the hold, so to speak, for the time being. But at some point, it will have to be uh, back in action, at which point perhaps we'll have a better sense of what it has meant for sustainability of many businesses in the Indian context. So uh, do you see that we are going to need a definitely a very different kind of a compact between state and capital going forward in order to restore growth in a post-pandemic phase? Uh, or are we going to see an intensification of some of the current trends towards greater concentration and an assumption perhaps on the government path that growth is the best bet on growth would be to bet on the growth of a few companies and allow them to sort of lead the market, so to speak? No. It, so I, I think there's kind of three important things which I think will be important going forward. Um, the first is what is this government's view on the concentration of capital as it relates to the Indian economy, right? In some senses, so far, the signal is pretty clear, right? We prefer a small number of capitalists who can manage the ecosystem, and the rest will have to figure it out as they do, right? No one's getting any special favors. No one's getting access. You know, if you're not getting access to money through public sector banks, figure it out. That's your problem, right? And, and, and I think there's a very real risk that the end point of something like that looks less like the South Korean Chebols and looks more like Russian oligarchy, right? I think there's kind of in this varieties of capitalism conversation, I think the, the, the problematic endpoint is always the Russian style or the Latin American style concentration of capital, almost kind of capital oligarchy issue, which I, we're not there yet. But if we keep going this way in the next 5, 10, 15 years, we could very well be there. So that's kind of one thing which I do worry about a little bit, although it's perhaps a bit premature to start worrying about that immediately. I think the second way forward, honestly, and I, this is where I don't have as much hope, is that we need to get conversations between capital and the state restarted. Um, just because you have a parliamentary majority does not mean you get to shut people out. You know, even capital has a certain democracy, which has existed in India for the last 50, 55 years. And there's only so much you can alienate your capitalist class before they say it's not worth it anymore, right? I think one of the things I observed in my essay is, while this isn't, you know, kind of being announced publicly anywhere, a lot of small businessmen are just deciding to take their money and leave India, right? In completely legal ways, but just saying, I don't want to run anything in here anymore, right? The next generation of South Bombay small businessmen may not exist. Uh, and I think that would definitely be a loss. And so I think... This is happening through private conversations, right? Niti Aayog will do this. There will be various private convenings to various ministries. I'm not saying these conversations aren't happening. It's just that people have been saying things at these convenings for the last four or five years and very little happens afterwards. And unless that perception changes, I think a lot of people will decide to exit, decide not to invest. This private investment slump will continue. And so I, I, a reopening of kind of engagement with capital in productive ways um, needs to happen. I think the third thing, which, you know, I, I think it's very easy to blame the government for all of this, but I think the business community also needs a little bit of introspection. And I think one of the really productive things, which I think should happen in every major corporation is they should have some kind of policy unit, which is putting out ideas, white papers, trying to 
define what they think a regulatory system, uh, what kind of legislations would be useful for them. Just to give you an example, right? Kind of when the whole Johnson and Johnson medical devices problem happened a few years ago, um, there was no framework legislation that the Association of Medical Devices in India manufacturers, I'm forgetting what the association's name is, had put together, right? Everyone was off making their own devices under existing acts, but no one could come out and say, look, here is what's happened in five, seven different countries. We think this kind of regulatory system would make sense. And let's approach, approach the ministry and try to see if they're willing to play ball on this. Now, some of this kind of work happens in think tanks and universities and other spaces, but honestly, corporations should be doing this more and more, right? They should have a chief public policy officer the way they have CTOs or CEOs. And some of the tech companies have been much smarter on this, I think, than the older companies. But they have to be involved in proactively shaping the policy environment rather than just reacting to it and then making successive deals which may or may not work in their favor. Um, and yeah, so and, and I, I think some of the most forward-looking companies are starting to do this, but I think there's a certain culture building around public deliberation on private uh, policy on policy questions, which would, I think, improve the public debate over these issues. I think which would put a little bit of pressure on various economic ministries to not stick with the status quo and actually change things on the margin. Uh, and all of this happens in some kind of circuitous private conversation right now. I think there should be more public deliberation on these issues. Um, those are, I think, some of the important things I would look at going forward. And in fact. I have been talking to various large companies who are on the verge of doing something like this and are very interested in talking to policy professionals about build such cultures in their businesses. I think if that would happen, that would be a great public service to India by these corporations. On that optimistic note, Rohit, thanks so much for joining us today. It was great to chat with you about all this. Thanks so much, Srinath. Thank you listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay safe and don't forget to wash your hands. For more information about the podcast and the production team, you can follow us on social media and visit our webpage. 